Happy summer. Leah Pika here. Today's guest is an analytics entrepreneur who's helping companies get a little closer to their valuable customers. Stay tuned to find out who's taking the stage on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 34. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics visualizations and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hey guys, welcome to the 34th episode of Present Beyond Measure, the only podcast at the intersection of presentation, data visualization, analytics, and storytelling. This is the place to be if you are a digital practitioner, marketer, SCM, SEO analyst, and you are ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through thoughtfully presented insights. So the summer is, we are really, wow, we are almost halfway through lot of exciting stuff on the horizon. First, I want to make sure that you get a copy of my epic new guide to my Pika Protocol prescription, which is a 22-page ebook totally for free that you can download at the bottom of this post. It is a deep dive into a practical, repeatable, and truly effective approach to telling your data stories in a way that gets maximum impact. So, don't forget to scroll to the bottom of the show notes page. It's leahpeak.com slash 034 and grab a copy. I would love to see you join me at the Digital Analytics Hub. It is the premier analytics conference in the country, really intimate settings, amazing huddle leaders. I'm so excited. It's my first time and I'm getting to lead the keynote and a workshop. So in my workshop, this is my Inspired Insights Bootcamp. You'll learn how to plan, design, and deliver your data story in a way that informs decisions, inspires ideas, galvanizes stakeholders into action, and communicates the value of your work. It's important stuff. Seats are very limited, so you really don't want to miss the chance to get this information in your hands at this rate. So I'd love to see you there. You can learn more and sign up at leahpika.com slash hub. So I promised a while back that I'd try to incorporate story into my podcast episodes. And I want to tell you a very quick story that um, was professionally related, but it really had a profound impact on me personally. I was invited to do the honor of giving the keynote at the Women in Analytics luncheon at the Marketing Evolution Experience Conference in Vegas last month. And, you know, I wasn't sure, you know, what it would look like going in, but I really sort of left my heart out on the table. And it was a very vulnerable tale of how I navigated, uh, you know, what is a male-dominated field and grew a brand a successful brand and how that reflected on my experience as a woman. So one of the things I spoke about that I think surprised people was the importance of reconnecting to my feminine side and staying open and vulnerable as a source of power rather than as a source of weakness. And while I've been practicing that mindset for a long time, I was really shocked at some of the questions that I got from the audience, like, but we've been trained to, uh, that vulnerability is weakness. How can we be open 
and also be seen as strong or competent. And I was amazed that there is a, a sense out there that to be strong or competent is the opposite of being open and vulnerable. And I have found quite the opposite to be true. So that was a really powerful experience. And I was really happy to share that for the with the analytics community for the first time. And I will be actually speaking more about masculine feminine dynamics in the workplace as it relates to communication. Communication is going to become a really big piece of what I'm going to be talking about on this show, because I don't care how beautiful your charts are, how you communicate them, and how you relate in your business relationships is critical to how they're received. And the last thing I wanted to mention was, this was such an inspiring effort for me that I realized I wanted to really give back in my business. I really wanted to make my business conscious and something that gives to the world. So I've made a pledge to donate 1% of all of my earnings to the Women in Transition charity in Philadelphia. This is a beautiful charity that helps sufferers of domestic violence uh, really get a new lease on life by bringing them to safe places and really helping them enter the workforce again. And this really spoke to me, and I thought it would align perfectly for the kind of message I want to send to the world with my business and brand. So supporting me means supporting women in transition. And if you're interested in making a donation of your own, uh, there's going to be a link at the bottom of the show notes page. Now, within that theme, I am really excited because it struck me when I looked back at my guest list roster for this show, I was appalled at how few women I had featured. There are so many incredible women practitioners, thought leaders, experts in this field, and I have made another pledge to create a special segment of the show called Women in Analytics Spotlight. And I'm going to be featuring so many amazing names. And we're really going to be starting to examine what that experience looks like from the women's perspective. And also taking a lot of time to honor and recognize the amazing women and men that help us to succeed in this field. So I am so proud to kick that off today with an amazing, fearless female guest. On to the show. Hello, everyone. So excited for today's guest. She is the CEO and founder of Ambition Data, one of three companies she has founded as a serial entrepreneur. This current firm creates strong marketing ROI through customer centricity. And by knowing the value of each and every customer, she helps companies naturally build customer equity. She's a deeply skilled marketing technologist with a broad strategic view and a passion for analysis. She's built and executed analytics strategies for Fortune 500 companies, including BlackRock, Blue Shield, GlaxoSmithKline, HP, Intel, and the list goes on. Her experience and passion for analysis allows her to see future trends and relate it all the way back to the tactical moves her clients need to make today. She's a celebrated speaker in the digital analytics industry and my first guest of my Women in Analytics Spotlight series. With that, I'd love to introduce you to Allison Hartso. Welcome. 
Thank you, Leah. That was a wonderful introduction, and I'm I'm feeling so uh, proud now. <laughs> you should. You've earned it. Um, so we met a number of years ago at eMetrics after I watched you speak, and I remember really being struck by your poise and expertise and confidence, and of course your reputation precedes you. So we finally reconnected after I went solo again, and here we are. So exciting. I know, I know. It was great. You were just starting at the time and getting everything up and running. And look at you now. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yes, it's been quite a journey. So I know everyone will want to hear your origin story. Tell us a little bit how you fell into this world of measure. Yeah, well, my degree was actually in journalism, uh, unlike everybody else who seemed to come from statistics or economics or some kind of mathy background. I actually wanted to be the next Katie Couric. So mm -hmm. verbal presentation of information was really natural for me. It was comfortable and, and uh, you know, was what I what I thought I would end up doing. Um, but there's such a brilliant clarity in the analytics side of this business, of this industry, uh, where you, even though I'm not a, a math geek, when I start to understand the workings of a business and I look at the data, it's really compelling to bring that in and start to talk about um, what's exciting to a business and relate that back to data that isn't as subjective uh, as some other content that we might be looking mm -hmm. at if we were just doing visual communication or verbal communication. Right. That makes sense. So how did presenting and speaking start to come into play during your rise in your career? So uh, the first company that I was part of uh, was called iSyndicate and it was actually the second. The first one I, I co-founded was called iSyndicate and it went really big, really fast. And as part of that, we did presentation after presentation mm -hmm. after presentation, most of the time to investors and uh, also to public conferences. And that's what really drove a lot of my early um, presentation skills. And as part of those investor presentations, you oftentimes had to talk through certain nuances of the business, um, mm. you know, your future revenues and what really drove the business. And, you know, after a while, people tend to ask the same questions. So you got to know what were the right answers. Every now and then you get something out of left field. But for the most part, that early crucible of having to defend your idea over and over and over again was mm. what drove my initial um, presentation skills. That's interesting. So, you know, you formed a lot of your skills in a persuasive presentation construct, right? Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm always arguing that when we try to speak about our results to our stakeholders, we are persuading them. We're kind of selling our story and our recommendations, right? So mm -hmm. what are some of the, do you have any ideas of some of the persuasive techniques that you learned that were really valuable in those investor <laughs> side presentations. 
Yeah, uh, social proof is one I go to an awful lot. You know, uh, wherever you can pull in a third-party data source and say, "Oh, well, Forrester said that uh, the industry is going to be X Y Z size by this year." Um, that's an element of social proof. Mm-hmm. Or if you can get actual customer quotes, you know, this customer said it was the best thing since sliced bread. Again, social proof that helps people get more comfortable uh, with the information that you're presenting. But I think the the other element that works well with persuasion uh, or persuasive storytelling is to allow people to let down their guard by telling a story, by, by not just saying, here's the answer, but walking them down the path. Mm, okay. So what's an example of, is it letting your guard down or is it allowing them to let their guard down by disarming them with a, a story of some kind? <laughs> Yeah, it's allowing them to let their guard down. So, for example, sometimes when I present data and information, uh, I'll sometimes put it in the context of um, here's Dr. Such and Such. He runs XYZ kind of clinic. This is what you know about him. You see this about him and you see that about him. But what he actually talks about is XYZ. And and so by by couching it in a story, suddenly it's not, you know, oh, you're calling my baby ugly. You're saying my campaign is (laughs) insane. ineffective or any of that, you're actually moving them along into, oh, this is a person who needs my help. How can I help them? Mm -hmm. I love that technique. I've tried it a couple of times where we were seeing something happening on a broader scale across a website, but we tried to start with personifying a single story that we crafted through, you know, customer feedback through voice of customer and things mm-hmm. and, and said, you know, this could be happening right now based on what we're seeing. And now this could be affecting this population or this amount of our visitor traffic and like then bubbling up to a more aggregate uh, rather than starting at the top and then zeroing in. Mm-hmm. Um, so what kinds of data do you pull in to craft your your stories of, of really making it personal like that? Well, we're always looking for customer, uh, very specific customer data. And the way we handle customer data is by calculating CLV. So we want to have a very strong connection, a bright line between the activities that are taken and the potential financial impact. And that comes from my background as an entrepreneur. You know, you can't sit in the boardroom and not understand what is actually driving the business. Mm -hmm. So I've always found it um, somewhat fluffy in marketing when we talk about things that don't necessarily drive the business, but drive it obliquely. Things like reach and impression and branding. We know these things are important and I'm not discounting them at all. But when I want to draw a bright line between um, actual impact and the people who are taking actions to drive that impact for my business, then I want to understand the customers and customer lifetime value. So when when we do presentations, it's always getting back into um, the different classes of customers and then the personas that fall within those. So high value customers are not all the same. High value customers may have certain dimensions around them, or you may have certain third party personas that feed into that high value customer group. People don't have the same motivations for mm. buying a lot or buying a little. So, you know, you can't expect it to be just one persona per per value group. Of course, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I'm sure communicating customer value 
is complex. You know, there are so many variables feeding into that. Do you have, you know, where have you struggled in trying to communicate complex ideas like that? And what are some of the tools or analogies, things that you use to get the message across? Yeah, analogies is always, always good. <laughs> I used an analogy. I was speaking up at Microsoft the other day, and I used this analogy that said, um, what was it about? Um, something like, uh, this is like spilling sugar in a sandbox full of toddlers. No one will be happy with the end result. <laughs> so I, I definitely find analogies to be very powerful for, um, and I oftentimes use analogies around cooking and around marriage and things that mm. are uh, appeal to both sexes. I, you know, I try not to use sports analogies unless it's a very specific audience for sports. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right, actually, um, I like that universal examples. Yeah. So oftentimes an analogy I'll, I'll pick up for customers is uh, when I'm trying to explain the difference between aggregates and specifics. So we want people to take more specific activity or, or more specific actions to have more specific segments. We want those segments to be powerful. So I oftentimes go to a grocery store analogy and I say, if you were to go in the grocery store and just pick up all kinds of ingredients and throw it in a cart and then try to make something out of it, mm -hmm. that is the equivalent of aggregate metrics. You get a whole lot of stuff, but you don't necessarily get anything that tastes good, meaning you can't necessarily mm -hmm. take action from it. But if you have a very specific Top Chef recipe, then you come in and you pick out your ingredients. Now, we are the, the chefs. We're the people that help you make that a really beautiful um, gourmet experience, even though you may not have all the uh, techniques down, we can kind of take all those ingredients and make it even better for you. Mm -hmm. That's the, the beauty of really good analysis, really sharp segmentation mm -hmm. that drives to the bottom line. I love that. <laughs> and it's so true. It's so much easier to process it and integrate it when it's something that's so easily understood as simple as cooking and food shopping. Um, but if it's explained only in its complete abstract terms, you're like, okay, I think I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting what you said about, you know, I think I get it. The audience will do that. You know, I, I oftentimes look for certain markers, uh, certain nonverbal markers of engagement, because I know if I have their eyes and if I have, you know, active questions going on, then I've got their engagement and they actually are understanding. Mm -hmm. But the worst, and we've all been there, like we've all had these rooms where like it's an silence. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and then when you ask if people understand, they don't know what questions to ask or they just mm. tell you yes, because they don't want to be stupid. And, you know, no one wants to be embarrassed, but trying to get people out of that shell to make them connect to the information is incredibly important to communicating and understanding. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is really fascinating. Um, because I've always wondered, I've, I fell into a habit as I presented more of saying, checking in and going, does this, does this make sense? Does anyone oh, yeah. have any questions? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I have a feeling that that's creating more of a problem than a solution because there, if there, if no one has any questions, you know, you're kind of left there and you're wondering, are people listening? Are they keeping up with me? 
Or is it just totally understandable? Are they not feeling engaged? And then does it make sense? Almost feels condescending to me. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the nonverbal markers that you look for that you're on the right track or you're way off? (laughs) Yeah, um, I actually look for a really subtle verbal marker when I can see it. I look at people's feet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, do explain. Well, I mean, you know, everybody knows the basic ones. Do you have eye contact? Are people writing? Are they asking questions? Yeah, okay, so we all get that. Um, But when you look at people's feet, it tells you whether they're actually trying to get out the door, you know, and their feet are pointing toward the door, or whether they're Mm -hmm. pointing toward you and they're interested in you. And, you know, I mean, most of the time we're sitting at tables, we can't always tell that, but you can also tell from body position. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a really great marker to tell when somebody's trying to escape the room. <laughs> this is so funny. I can just imagine myself like being like, just one second, guys, and like checking under the table for everyone's <laughs> feet direction. <laughs> um, no, but this is really this is really fascinating um, because in a very early episode that I had with Eric Feinberg of 4C, he actually talked about one of his strategies for making a person feel really uh, engaged and having his full attention if they ask a question was pointing his feet towards that person, like making sure they were pointed towards that person because that whole body language, as you just said, indicates full engagement. So this is really fascinating. I never thought of understanding how their entire body would be aligned in terms of reading their levels of engagement. And it makes so much sense. You can also do it at networking events. If you want to see like who's attracted to whom and you watch their feet and their feet are pointing at each other and you can see how that person's really into that other person. This is an excellent, this is an excellent tip and I might be creepy during the next uh, event, but (laughs) so that's really useful. Now back to some of the other things. How do you, do you give verbal cues for checking in with your audience to make sure they're keeping pace with you? Like you've just explained a complex concept for CLV and you're seeing some blank stares. Do you have any strategies or tools for checking in with them that doesn't feel patronizing or putting them on the spot? I think it depends on the size. Um, you know, mm-hmm. in an in an audience, so like the, the presentation I just did at Microsoft, it's a big audience. You know, it's it's not easy to if you checked in with the audience, would you get anything back? They're all holding questions to the end. And mm, right. so in in that kind of format, I try to sprinkle in some laughter and some um some funny analogies to either wake them up or, or draw them back in. Mm. And, and that's my, that's my soft check-in, whether they're actually understanding what I'm saying or not will come clear in the questions at the end. Of course. But hopefully I'll, you know, I'll, I'll raise the energy of the room just enough. I'll give it a bump. And um, the marker I use is about every seven minutes because that's the same as what our TV schedule runs. So about every seven minutes, you, you just can't let it drag any more than that. You've got to bump again with some kind of humor or some kind of energy push. Yeah, this is this journalism experience is definitely. (laughs) Well, that actually comes from Toastmasters. uh, Uh, Yeah, I joined a a professional speakers group and they gave me all kinds of critical feedback, uh, nice critical feedback. And that was one thing I learned from them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now, with a smaller group, I, I think the the technique there is to 
try to get them to see the application of what you are discussing. Uh, so sometimes we already know, like we've gone through all the all the data, we've gone through all the information, and we're making recommendations. So a, a check in that might be better than "Are you with me?" or "Can you, <laughs> you know, can you hear me now?" Um, is more of how do you see this being used by your team or, you know, are there other ways you think your team might be able to take this recommendation or this direction and giving it something that's not a yes, no question. Okay. Mm, Not yes, no. Cause it's so easy. People will just pick one or the other and it's, there's no wrong answer. Right. Right. Interesting. Oh, this is so helpful. So in terms of using humor, you know, that that can be a fairly, <laughs> you need a, a element of bravery, I think, to use it, right? Um, what's an example of one of the analogies that you might use to like bring people back or check in with a larger size audience? Uh, let's see. What did I use recently? Well, I told you the toddler one already. <laughs> um, I oftentimes... Um, So there was another one I used about, um, I'll oftentimes use dating, um, dating and marriage, because, you know, when you're, everyone understands dating and marriage, and that's an easy go to. So let me see if I can remember exactly what what the um, context was. I think it was around... um, when you are trying to, um, I almost feel like I need to pull up the slide now to remember the specific context. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but it, it was something around um, getting a lot of signal from, from, um, Oh, oh, that's right. It was a Wall Street example. Uh, and and the example had to do with Blue Apron and their IPO and um, the fact that there were lots of metrics that Wall Street was using to show that there was value in um, in this particular IPO. The reason it man- mattered for analytics was that Wall Street was actually wrong. They were, and, and there's a fantastic analysis you can see on this from Dan McCarthy, who shows how CLV techniques show that um, what was actually happening in the Blue uh, apron customer base was they were churning much more quickly at about the rate of 70% every six months. Mm-hmm. So the the idea here was that the Wall Street was saying that, look at all this acquisition, this company is going up and to the right, revenues are up, acquisition mm-hmm. is up, isn't this all great? Yeah, and, and that is the equivalent of saying that, you know, the more people you date, the better your marriage will be. <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, how many people that love you will encourage you to have a better marriage. Mm. And and the analogy was, if that were true, then celebrity marriages would never fail right. because, you know, <laughs> we all love Brad Pitt and all these other stars right. out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the end point was acquisition is not, is not impact. It's not long-term value for a company. It's just the start of a relationship with, com- with customers and that you should always be looking at the back end, which is retention. I see. That's great. I really love that. And so we should just be on the lookout for different ways that what's happening in the world and, you know, current events can feed into a potential explanation for something that makes more sense. I love it. 
So um, what are the kinds of things that you see people struggling with in presenting in our field, whether that's, you know, analysts or marketers ah. trying to communicate, maybe if they're trying to internally communicate the value of what you're doing, um, what are you, where are you seeing the struggles right now? Yeah, you know, the, the number one pet peeve that I have, and the only way you could probably get fired from my company is to do date, <laughs> data puke, uh, what Avinash calls data puke. Yes. I absolutely hate that. You know, it, it's the laziest thing to do is to throw a bunch of data into the slides and then ask the receiver of that information, the stakeholder to figure it out, figure mm -hmm. out what it all means. You know, that is just that's that's the worst. Yeah. So I and, and by data puke, I mean, you know, here are 50 different cuts of the data mm -hmm. and I'm not going to tell you anything about what is actually meaningful. I'm right. just going to spread out a whole bunch of data for you. Right. This is so true. Um, in my workshops, I teach uh, a method called presenting by boxes that forces people to focus on three main ideas or insights only um, so that it is more digestible and more likely to be acted upon because they aren't, there aren't 50 metrics coming at them where they don't know what to do and they're not related to each other. Um, but there's really one cohesive message. So I think that that's really valuable advice. And what I hear from a lot of students, and I don't know if you hear this too, is that, but that's what the client's asking for. The client asked for, show me what you've got. I want to see everything, right? Yeah, th that means they don't trust you. Uh, oh, they don't trust your recommendations, right? Like if they're saying, show me what you got, I want to see everything. It means I don't trust you to come to conclusions that I will believe. Mm. That's really interesting. Um, I actually feel a similar way about when audiences, and this is controversial, but when audiences ask for the decks in advance before you are there as the storyteller to take them through and guide them through your actual story, that they want to see everything in advance. My belief is that's also a trust issue because they're not sure they're going to get a full story or value from the actual presentation where you're leading. I don't know how you feel about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't do that ahead of time. I'll, if they insist on something like that, I might offer to record a video and send it to them. That usually causes them to back down a little bit because the <laughs> idea of watching a video for 30, 40 minutes uh, is not appealing. <laughs> Interesting. Usually what I've done is I've said, well, you know, I really want to take you through the story step by step. And but for now, I'll give you a couple of highlights like just drop like one or two of the key themes and say, but we have a lot of more information coming at you and we really want to take you through live. Um, so I've had, I've had pretty good results with that, but yeah, trust is key for sure. What are some of the ways that you like to build trust with the people that you're speaking to, especially in helping them understand what it is ambition data does? Well, trust is all about rapport. Uh, so it's really it's really two things. One is uh, people will hear you better if they like you. <laughs> 
That's true. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And whether you, you know, whether we want to acknowledge that or not, it is the case uh, that they'll, they won't be as skeptical. They won't be as, um, they won't deny your facts as easily if they already feel like they like you. Mm -hmm. They like you when they feel like they can identify with things that are common. So you're from the same area of the country or you have similar ages and kids. You both have kids. Mm -hmm. You have similar pets, you know, whatever that commonality for um, that, that basis of communication can be is a, is a great way to strike up rapport. And the only purpose of that rapport, I mean, it it is to, to make friends and to, you know, to continue to broaden your network. That's always a good thing, but it's also so that they will trust, believe and understand you. The, the second part of of that question, I think gets to, what was the other thing I was thinking of? Um, was the trust part? Oh, I've forgotten now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in terms of building trust, um, I, I mean, I, that answer was, was fantastic. I think that um, we don't realize how much of the breakdowns in communication that we are experiencing are relationship issues. I've often likened a lot of the breakdowns I've witnessed to dysfunctional marriages, essentially, where Mm -hmm. there are needs. Uh, We are humans and we have these human needs on both sides. And a lot of times neither side is well equipped to understand what those needs are and recognize the bids from each side to fill those needs. That's an excellent word, the bid, uh, the bid for attention. And that's why the meeting starts before the meeting. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you don't have any context for the people that you're going to talk to when you walk into that room, you know, you're walking into a loaded situation already. Mm-hmm. You better be really good with some rapport right out of the gate. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to convince that group. And even then, it's only so far you can go in five minutes. Um, but, you know, building that rapport ahead of time before you walk in, especially with your stakeholder or whoever is going to be whoever has your back in the meeting is is incredibly important. I couldn't agree with you more. Several guests, including Adam Greco and Dustin Matthews, both suggested finding an advocate or a champion, especially someone who's several level, levels higher on the hierarchy chain than you are, who may already know the stakeholder audience really well or have, you know, a lot of clout act as your champion during that meeting and actually introduce you. And I could see how that could pave the way towards trust tremendously, you know, by by creating, allowing someone else's rapport to even help facilitate your rapport with the audience. Yeah, absolutely. And then the reverse is also true. If you can't get that person to introduce you, then you've really got a problem. (laughs) That's true. If you can't find one person willing to introduce you, might want to investigate. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd love to know more about how you are starting to reach a greater audience in the analytics field around what it is you do and understanding customer value. So you have a couple great initiatives happening. I'd love to hear about your Accelerator podcast. 
Oh, yes. Uh, so I run the Customer Equity Accelerator podcast. And the purpose of this podcast is to help businesses understand how they can use uh, customer lifetime value and customer information more effectively. It, it seems like an obvious thing. You know, if I'm in business. Yeah, I have customer data. But it's surprisingly splintered across every organization. And the larger the organization, the worse it is. Mm-hmm. So the definition of the customer may be completely different between one sales team and another. The definition of the customer may be different in the um, call center and that the incentives and motivations behind each of these teams uh, can also be misaligned. So the process of bringing a common definition together and helping the organization row the boat all in the same direction mm-hmm. is actually a, a pretty big challenge. And so the companies that I talk to are oftentimes, they have insights or or interesting ways of getting quick wins, of going about the uh, successful, uh, going about the successful uh, tr- transformation of using that data. Mm-hmm. That's all of this is so interesting. And since doing this podcast, has it taught you or surprised you in any way around either the misconceptions or? preconceived notions around CLV and how people are using them and, you know, what are some of the recurring themes that you're seeing crop up as you explore that? You know, I, I learn as much from my guests as as I guess my listeners do. And, and it's so uh, valuable, I think, to have those interviews and, mm-hmm. and to pick up all these great ideas. One thing I picked up that I was um, surprised that I learned was from a woman who runs the uh, Customer Experience Professionals Association. Mm-hmm. And before I interview people on the podcast, I usually do a prep call. And in the prep call, I was thinking, oh, gosh, you know, here's this person and she's using the generic term customer experience and, you know, we're not about aggregates and how am I going to handle this? Because everything she's talking about is customer experience and aggregate. But what I learned from her that was so valuable is she said there's really at the sea level, there's no one who owns the customer. Where mm-hmm. is the champion for the customer? Who helps make those decisions about the opportunity cost when you decide what actions you want to take? And, that, and, and we went into why that was a C-level decision to um, make different choices for different customers. And of course, the analytics feeds right into that because you have different customer types and the value that they represent. So it became a really good, um, insightful conversation uh, in, in that respect. Well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, are there people at the C-level being assigned to being the champion for the customer and all of the different types that they represent. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that something that you have helped advocate for? Or what's your vision? Like, what's your perfect vision of an organization that is putting the customer first or understanding them? Perfect vision. Um, it's a, it's generally a very flexible, nimble organization. You know, testing and optimization actually go hand in hand with putting the customer first. And I it always makes me cringe when I hear people say, we put the customer at the heart of our organization <laughs> because uh, one, that's a it's a homogenous statement. It, it treats every customer as the same mm-hmm. as opposed to really respecting the heterogeneity of every customer and all their different needs and all the different ways. So um, 
I think what what we try to do is to bring that to bring that understanding to bear in in a business context. So where is where will innovation come from? Innovation comes from understanding your best customers and what they want from you. What kind of a relationship do they have with you? And in in today's world, people choose brands like they're choosing friends. And you know, <laughs> My friend that goes that I go hiking with, I might also want to go kayaking with. You know, are you as a business hearing the need for more adventures from this particular friend? Are are you hearing all of the different contexts that you can offer them service and convenience? How are you being of service to the customer? So innovation is a good angle on the upside. On the downside, you have to look at cost effectiveness. Mm-hmm. There are some people who are one and done, and I, I give this example, which is somewhat a somewhat of a horrible example, but I'm going to give it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a neighbor years ago that whose son committed suicide. And as part of the um, mourning and part of the support that the neighborhood offered to this family was we all make contributions to the Michigan Center for Depression. Well, Mm. the Michigan Center continued to uh, send me reminders about why I could donate more and more and more. And I am I am a low value customer to this organization. I don't want to be reminded of that event. And I don't I'm certainly Mm. not going to donate again unless there's some trigger or cause or action that that would come about. Now, you could argue that, you know, hey, if there is an event, then at least they're top of mind. But frankly, if I'm a low value customer and I haven't responded to you in five or 10 years, stop sending me stuff. Yeah. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Right. Uh, And so this is where cost effectiveness comes in. People who are giving you that signal of don't, um, you know, don't bother me. Don't give me something. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why I'm a low value customer. And conversely, not only should you not be spending a lot on me, but there's right. probably not a lot you can do to make me high value. Yeah. That is interesting because there can be such specific, um, it's not like you had bought a pair of shoes from Zappos and they're continuing to send you coupons. There are certain situations that are emotionally charged and delicate. And I think sometimes there are gaps in understanding how just putting a simple marketing plan into place has could have consequences like that. And I think it goes back to what you said about really understanding the business, what drives the business and the people that are driving that business as the customer groups, not just the single customer. But, you know, along those lines, businesses also tend to look at the ends. They tend to look at this giant pack of low value customers and say, Mm -hmm. oh, if I could reactivate a small percentage of them, then we would have X revenue. Mm -hmm. And conversely, they look at the high value customers and say, oh, I'm going to hit them with all kinds of marketing because they're high value customers. Both Mm -hmm. of those strategies are wrong. It's the people in the middle that we should be most concerned about because those are the ones who have given us some soft signal and they're, it's like dating, you know, they, they want to get to know our brand a little better and they might buy some more. And that is the time when we are most effective as marketers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Agreed. 
So I actually want to move on to the next section, which is brand new for this. And it's really talking about your journey as a woman in the field of analytics. There's a big movement going on now. And I was really inspired by speaking at the luncheon for this several weeks ago at the Marketing Evolution Experience. And you were the perfect first candidate for that. <laughs> so I would love to know, you know, thinking, reflecting as a lens, you know, what were the keys to your success, do you think, becoming a notable woman in this field? Well, thank you for saying I'm a notable woman in the field. <laughs> you are. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think there are two things that come to mind um, when I think about success. Um, well, grit is really a big one. Uh, you know, and, and it gets, you know, that you hear all this stuff about leaning in and taking a seat at the table. Mm. All of that is really about grit. And I, I sometimes have days where I feel like, Sisyphus, you know, pushing that rock uphill and <laughs> yes. the next day you're pushing it uphill again. <laughs> yes. Um, and, 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 um, I think there's a there's a good analogy in that you know if you, if you ever do distance races or a long bike ride of any sort there's this inflection point where you really want to quit and mm. things are hard and you know you've you've and maybe it even follows the 80/20 rule where you've gone through 80% and you've got 20% left you can't quite see the end but you're you know, you really need to find a way to reinvigorate or re-up in order to succeed. So grit's not just about staying power. It's about psyching yourself up to bring your best mm -hmm. again and again and again. And I guess the second part is really about relationships. Um, in, in this context, no one is successful by themselves. Right. No one, you know, no one has a dream and just, you know, sits down and does it and everything <laughs> just happens for them. <laughs> Right. We, we all support other people around us. And so I, I think I'm pretty good at collecting interesting people. I, I'm so curious. And when I run across another mind who's really interesting, I, I can't help but keep in touch with those people. And it's not uncommon for me to keep in touch with fascinating people for 20 or 30 years. Mm. And that's been very helpful. Yeah. When I when I have a, an interesting question I need to pose to someone in my network, it's not like I reach out to them and say, hey, will you be a mentor? Will you be an advisor? We just naturally fall into that because there's mutual interest. And that's been very helpful too. Mm -hmm. Both of those are wonderful. I'd love to give my take actually. The first one on, on grit, I, I absolutely can relate <laughs> to that rock feeling heavier some days, even after pushing it upward. Um, the self-inflection point I think is also interesting because I'm a big believer in self-care, especially in the last few years where I really burnt myself out and I really tripped a lot of health wires that kind of took me out of commission. <laughs> so I really didn't have much choice but to focus a lot of resources on self-care. And what I found was that um, I go into these bursts of just like, like you said, leaning in, putting all my grit in. But then if I go for too long at that rate, I do end up burning out and becoming less productive. So I think that when I, for me, I would suggest when you hit those in self inflection points, what are the what are the measures you're taking to do self care essentially to stop, rejuvenate yourself, and take a moment to think like, okay, 
what is really left here? What do I need to do to get that done? Um, what do I need to gather, like gather the steam again, like you said, to pull up and just get to the finish line? So I thought that's so useful. I, I so agree. And, and that's why I always think the factory hours are so <laughs> awful for us. You know, the, the yes. nine to five day, uh, you know, Monday through Friday, nine to five, be mm. in the office. That's just junk. And yeah. it, it comes out of an industrial age that we are no longer part of. Yeah. And when it comes to managing your own um, self-care, I, I always tell my team, you know, take a day, take time yeah. here or there, because I'd rather have them take time now right. than need six months later. Oh, absolutely. When they're completely fried. And, you know, if I had to construct a perfect office, you know, right now, home is the perfect office because I control my environment. Um, it would be nap pods <laughs> because we are built to nap and rest. Um, it would be healthy food, fresh air, meeting areas in the sunlight. You know, I know that might sound a little crazy, but these are the things mm -hmm. that biologically allow us to thrive. And, and recharge. And recharge, exactly. So, mm -hmm. well, maybe one day. But mm -hmm. the second point on relationships, and this kind of goes into my next question, I I could not agree more. You know, my mission started with a dream and I was alone, but there were many, many people along the way that supported and I really had to curate a sort of support network. Uh, we all do. So I would actually love, you know, I want to recognize both women and men that really support our professional journey. So I was wondering if you wanted to do that right now. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, June Dershowitz is my number one. Uh, thank you. I can't thank her enough. She helped me get started in this field. I was I was uh, closing a, a company that I was running and I was transferring into analytics. I knew there was something interesting going on. And I went to eMetrics and I, I, I literally had note cards of all these different people <laughs> that I had found online. And I was like checking them off and going around like a stalker trying to find people. And June was one of the people on my list. Some people gave me um, time and other people were just like, oh, yeah, you know, I don't know you, whatever. <laughs> uh, but, you know, June was very gracious and mm -hmm. helped connect me to other people. She actually inevitably connected me to Symphonic. And that's the uh, other person I would shout out to is Gary Angel, who not only led the smartest group of people I've ever worked with, mm -hmm. but also gave me a whole lot of running room to act like an entrepreneur within his company, which is, you know, a sign of being very supportive and it was never threatened by my challenges. Uh, you know, he, he was, uh, he was always looking for great ways to make the company better. And, mm -hmm. and that was, uh, uh, both, both of them, I, I owe an awful lot to. Well, that's wonderful. Um, actually June was a podcast guest. She was probably my first, one of my first, uh, female guests. And that was great. So I'll definitely put that on the show notes. And I actually just finally met Gary <laughs> just oh. a few weeks ago after years of kind of missing each other. And I can also attest that not only is he brilliant, but uh, seems to be so approachable and warm. And I could see how he could be really supportive, uh, you know, a champion for people yeah. he believes in. He's great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fantastic. So, Allison, I call the next segment the upgrade, which is a quick power tip of doing our jobs of presenting something, communicating more effectively. So do you have something to share? 
um, about how to communicate more effectively, like a power tip? Yeah, if there's if there's a resource that really helped you in, in learning how to present more effectively or communicate. So I'm going to get a little geeky here, and I'm going to actually say it's the denominator. Okay. <laughs> my my power tip is is uh, about the denominator. I, I think that is the most overlooked, most powerful tool because it indicates the basis of what's important. It gives us the context to understand whether something is good or bad enough to take mm-hmm. an action. And too often what we find is this denominator is based on kind of junk um, you know, a big number that has little impact on the biz on the business, like it's traffic or visits or impressions or reach. Uh, you know, these numbers are important, but they're not impactful mm-hmm. to the business. And so, making that denominator account of customers or customers or prospects creates that direct line to business impact, and and that's what you can pivot the entire company around. So, some something as small as the bottom of a fraction. <laughs> can pivot your whole company. <laughs> right. So it isn't, you know, page views per session. It's making that denominator as close to the customer as possible. Right. Right. Page views per most valuable customer. Got it. Okay. All right. I love that. So this is our final question. Imagine this very plausible scenario. You're just about to win a logic puzzle match at the U.S. Puzzle, puzzle Match Championship when suddenly you trip and fall into a rip in time and it pulls you back to the moment you're about to walk into your first presentation. What would the you of today say to the you of yesterday? (laughs) Don't drink so much coffee. (laughs) (laughs) No, I actually, uh, I think that is um, the pace with which we present, the pace with which we speak is actually pretty important to under, to helping people understand. And I oftentimes try to feel, I oftentimes feel like I'm jamming an MBA into somebody's head uh, <laughs> in, in the course of a presentation because I, I, I get so excited. It's so interesting and all these pieces fit together. But to the audience, you might as well be talking about accounting because, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're just not that interested. Yes. So... Dropping the pace, making that connection, that's all such a great part of um, maybe you call it the Southern way of presenting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's this idea of just slowing down, you know, in the delivery component of my workshop. I talk, I, I show like what happens if you start talking really fast because you really want to get out of the room and you don't want to be there another second longer. And it's really obvious that you don't want to be there. And I agree with you, focusing, even recording yourself, which was a game changer for me with my Jersey Shore speed, (laughs) Um, it really helped me understand how fast I was going and even words that I wanted to pause on that left more gravity. I've definitely picked up on your pace, your articulation and emphasis has really made it easy for me to follow you even during this call which I think is something I want to point out for the listeners if they want to go back and hear again and start to hear how a real master does it, you know? Oh, thank you. That's great. I always feel like I'm talking too quickly, but I um, I enjoy getting the message across. And, you know, when you have a receptive audience, it's always easier. <laughs> yes. And we know now the, the key to that is trust. <laughs> <laughs> 
So unfortunately, our time has run out. This was so interesting. And you left so many valuable pieces of, of information for us to think about. So tell the listeners where they can keep up with you. Yeah, uh, certainly. You can always reach me through LinkedIn or at Ambition Data. I'm Allison at AmbitionData.com. Uh, and I we, we have actually just replatformed the whole site and we're working on making things communicate better. I would love feedback, you know, not a sales pitch, but like, I would love to know, like, do you understand what we do? I would love to get that kind of <laughs> feedback from people. Uh, and I'm, I'm totally open to any kind of constructive of criticism because it matters, right? If we don't ask, we never learn. And, uh, you know, I, I want to grow as much as the next person. Yes, absolutely. When you said that you learn as much from your podcast guests as your listeners do, I could not agree more. I feel like I've hit the jackpot with this free wealth of <laughs> endless, <laughs> endless valuable information. And I've crafted and, and really evolved my own craft so much because of the amazing guests that I've been able to have on like you. I know and, that feeling. <laughs> and I just want to thank you, you know, for being such an inspiration, especially to women in this field. Um, you know, you have such a really great balance of approachability and understandability and also poise. And I think that all leads to credibility in a career that people want to show up for every day. And and I just really want to recognize you for that. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show. And I look forward to our paths crossing again. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. What an amazing interview. Allison did not disappoint. I think that background in journalism really came in handy. She just has a way of getting a message across so succinctly and powerfully that I really resonate with. I hope you did too. To catch all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode, visit the show notes page at leahpika.com slash 034. I would love if you could leave me or Allison a comment or suggestions because I want to hear about the challenges you face when presenting information. And if you like what you've heard, please hop on over to iTunes to subscribe, leave a rating and review. Ratings and reviews are so appreciated because they help boost the rankings of the show so other practitioners like you can get this awesome information. And I'll be reading out my favorites on future episodes. You can also tweet me a question at Leah Pika and including the hashtag PBM. Don't forget to grab your free copy of the Pika protocol prescription at the bottom of the show notes page as well. And today's inspiration is from Stacy Benday from Alice and Olivia. And that is, here's to strong women. May we know them. May we be them may we raise them. I love the idea of us all getting on the same team in this industry. There's no us versus them. Because when we're on the same team, both sides win. See you next time. Namaste. a lot of fun it's it's i know what you mean i'm excited to get back on that other side <laughs> you're tired yeah right <laughs>